Hi, this is Bill. In this episode of Open Out, called A Changing Church, was recorded before we felt the full impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the houses of worship were shuttered, the communities of faith began creating new ways of communicating, connecting with one another. There's an odd irony in a podcast advocating opening our communities outward when they are, at least at the superficial level, closed completely. But of course, churches are far more than buildings, much more than Sunday worship. They are ever-changing, adapting, living sets of relationships. And so closing buildings cannot close hearts, and, and perhaps, actually, our hearts will open further through our experience in this challenging time. Today's episode looks at the church in the light of the changing cultural context of Canada. Our context is changing in real time right now, and none of us yet know how this will impact our communities held together by faith and promise. So, here is Episode 3, A Changing Church. Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series about the nitty-gritty of creating and living in intercultural communities, a practical side of welcoming folk from different cultures into our lives. I'm your host, Bill Miller. We hope to create an atmosphere of compassionate curiosity, an environment where all of us, whatever our background, can gently open our hearts and heads to diversity, create space in our personal lives and communities for those who not only look and sound different, but also think and act in ways we might not expect. Prior to creating Open Out, I was pastor of Knox United in Winnipeg for 14 years one of the most culturally diverse faith communities in North America. It did not start out that way. Its journey into diversity provided the base for much of the research. In the last episode, A Changing Country, we looked at the changing cultural and racial character of Canada, including projections of what we may indeed look like in another 20 years or so. In this episode, A Changing Church, We'll look squarely at some of the startling statistics concerning church decline. This episode might be of particular interest to you if you are part of a faith community, have been, or might like to be. Some of the material may be a bit unsettling, but then again, perhaps becoming unsettled is the very thing we need to be doing right now. Many years ago, when I worked for the Presbytery, the regional body, my job involved helping churches that were in transition. One year, I was sent to a small church in a poor neighborhood in Winnipeg's famous North End. The members were few, 10 or 12 maybe, mostly older folk, and most of them had been members for decades. It had a bit of a reputation for being difficult, stubborn, To my great relief, as I started there, a woman that I know, Karen, a community activist, had moved into the neighborhood and began attending worship. The group, they were so small in number, they didn't have a board. We just all met together and talked. At one point, we were discussing why, when there were so many young families in the neighborhood, none were attending worship. Karen said she'd go out and ask them. She'd knock on doors, chat and ask them what they thought about the church. 
few weeks later, she came back and reported. Sweatpants, she said. The issue was sweatpants. Nobody understood. And then she explained. She said people knew about the church, and, and, and some said they'd like to attend. They'd like to get involved, but they were poor, and the best they had to wear was sweatpants. So they wanted to know if they could come wearing sweatpants. The group met together and talked among themselves. Then they came back and said, no, if they can't dress properly for church, they ought not to come. I heard the front door of the church creak open as the spirit left the building. Faith communities respond to both difficulty and possibility in different ways. Knox engaged with the new community, and though they often did not know what they were doing or how to do it, they simply opened their doors and hearts to welcome a changed community, in this case, a newcomer community. In the process, it meant they would be changed as well. The church I was sent to that year, it didn't do that. For whatever reason, they couldn't. I suspect it was fear, fear of loss, fear of change, fear of the stranger, fear of those who dressed and acted differently. I guess that's called xenophobia, fear of the unknown, the stranger. Understanding the world of a stranger better can help reduce this fear, help us be a bit more free from our fear of changing or rather of being changed, our fear of losing something that we want so badly to hold on to. A deeper understanding can help lead us from xenophobia to xenophilia, a heartfelt opening to the stranger. If you haven't already done so, you might want to listen to the last podcast, A Changing Country. It outlines the dramatic shifts we're seeing in the Canadian population and what we are projected to look like by the year 2036. There's too much information for me to try to repeat that right now, but let me try to quickly summarize. Canada is seeing transformational changes in its racial and cultural makeup. And these changes are connected to how Canada has been growing for the last several decades. When the birth rate fell below replacement levels, most of our population increase started coming through immigration. And most of these immigrants are not coming from Europe. They're coming from Asia, South Asia mostly, but also from Africa. With that in mind, what about the church? What's happened to our faith communities with the decrease in birth rate? and the growth of immigration. Let's look first at how we grew in the past and what we've probably been assuming will help us grow or maintain as we go forward. Since I know it best, let's use the United Church as an example. Northrop Fry, the great Canadian literary critic, once described the United Church as, quote, an inevitable product of Canadianism, unquote. So aligned are their characteristics. Like the country, it grew slowly, steadfastly, from its birth in 1925 to its peak population in the mid-1960s when it had well over a million members. Its growth pattern closely mirrored the growth pattern of Canada itself. A bit of that came through immigration. Remember, most of the immigrants at that point were from so-called Christian countries in Europe. But overwhelmingly, most of the growth came through members having babies, baptizing them, bringing them to Sunday school. Eventually, they joined the church. Oh, maybe they'd stop attending for a while and 
but they'd start again once they started having babies. It's the pattern we knew, the one we came to expect. That pattern was similar in most Protestant churches, including the Anglicans and Lutherans. Babies were the key. Shortly after we reached that mid-60s peak, we began to shrink. This is also when the Canadian birth rate began to drop, and, not coincidentally, when the birth control pill was coming into common use. We were reflecting the Canadian pattern. But in the church, we kept assuming we would continue to grow or, or at least maintain in the same way we had grown and maintained before, babies. But as the congregations aged and the birth rate dropped below replacement levels, that wasn't going to happen. New initiatives, programs, and even the best gimmicks didn't seem to help. Add in the changes in the role of organized religion in society, and decline that gentle slide was perhaps inevitable. Inevitable or not, it was and is dramatic. As I was writing this script came the news that, according to a report to the General Synod of the Anglican Church in Canada, if current patterns of decline continue, there will be no members, attenders, or givers in the Anglican Church by the year 2040. Zero. Zip. That caused me to look at our statistics for the United Church. Turns out we're ahead of the Anglicans. Average attendance at worship has shown a remarkably consistent pattern of decline over the last 30 years. If it continues, somewhere between the years 2032 and 2034, no one will be attending worship in the United Church. Not one person. That means, based solely on worship attendance, our life expectancy at this point is only about 12 to 14 years. Then I looked at the decline in the total membership of the United Church, and here we're walking hand in hand with the Anglicans. According to my projections, we too will run out of members around the year 2042, just over 20 years from now. You can find graphs and some of this information at the website, openout.ca. What does this mean? It sounds apocalyptic. You know, in the Bible, there's all this scary stuff in books like Revelation and Daniel. Academics call it apocalyptic literature. And its role is to be that, to be scary. It's trying to say to you, to all of us, wake up. It's like the global warming scenarios that emerge every few years. Wake up. You love this planet. It's biodiversity. So wake up. You love this church, the faith. So wake up. There's a parallel between climate change in relation to political systems and demographic change in relation to the church. In both situations, if we keep going the same direction, we'll end up destroying ourselves. We will gently or not so gently, slide into oblivion. So, a good question might be, should we change direction? Currently, Canada's population growth is almost entirely coming from immigration. Non-European, non-white, non-Western. Is there any reason to believe that the church's growth, our growth, any growth, would show a different pattern than the country's? If our pattern in the past has so closely resembled the Canadian pattern, what reason would there be to assume it will suddenly diverge from it? 
Perhaps at this moment in our history, we need to look not so much to our leaders, but to ourselves, to our own small communities that still gather to pray and love and sing and seek justice. What if we really have only two choices? To embrace this new reality, allowing, encouraging our churches to morph into new intercultural communities, or become a kind of Anglo hideout, hold on as long as we can, last refuge of the once dominant colonialists. What do we do? The wild card in all this, for us, is faith. Someone once described faith as living in the middle of a miracle on the edge of disaster. Yeah, it fits. The very improbability of success seems the necessary precondition for faith to become fully activated. Personally and experientially, I'm convinced that God is calling us this way to open ourselves to greater and greater diversity. I think of words at the end of John's Gospel. When the risen Christ is talking to Simon Peter, and says, Seriously, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Peter, of course, is the symbol of the church. We're old now, church, and maybe we are being led somewhere where we might not otherwise be inclined to go. Going where we want to go, where we're inclined to go, of course, is often the wrong direction for real growth. The direction we need to go to be healthy, to grow, is often the exact opposite of our default direction. Knox, the church that I worked in that became so diverse, had been the very embodiment of European white privilege. In an aerial photo used for a financial campaign in the 1950s, they actually created a white moat around the church. People of Knox, they had to go opposite their natural inclination. Today, that moat is gone. Diversity has its challenges, pr pretty big challenges, but it also has great rewards. In the last episode, we referenced a recent study by the Center for International Governance Innovation that outlined the practical benefits of diversity, particularly, they say, in sectors that depend on creativity and innovation. Now, creativity and innovation might not be the two words that first come to mind when many folk think of the church, but they are actually core to our healthy identity, our healthy functioning as a church. The study says, the benefits of diversity include access to a wider talent pool, the innovation and creativity that comes with different point of views, the ability to develop and tailor services for a more diverse group, access to a wider talent pool, innovation and creativity that comes from different points of view. Given the pattern of decline in our churches as we've known it, this might be just what we need. That report went on to note, as we have, that in 20 years, virtually all of Canada's population growth will come through immigration. Again, 
With an aging population and increased pressure on health care, pensions, and other social services, a dynamic and productive skilled workforce will be an essential element in maintaining Canada's standard of living. In other words, we, Canada, need them, immigrants. We need them in order for us to be us, to be the us we know ourselves to be. That's true on a kind of emotional or spiritual level. It's also true on a practical day-to-day -day level. And if it's true for the country, isn't it likely that it could also be true for the church? For any church, any faith community to open to a broader segment of the population, it's not impossible. It might not even be that difficult. Oh, it's likely going to be stressful. But what change isn't? You probably won't need grand consultants. You can just start doing it. I can speak with some confidence when I say it's not impossible. It's what happened at Knox, Winnipeg. We opened our doors, our hearts, to welcome the neighborhood, and in the process, we were changed. Between 2004 and 2016, we went from about 80% white European settler and 20% other to about 75 to 80% newcomer, a, a full reversal. We went from about 20% visible minority to 80%, making language about majority and minority no longer applicable. We became the new Canada. Along the way, we found we were not alone. New partnerships with the Muslim community emerged. We found common ground with our neighbors. We went from almost 90% of us having traditional United Church roots to less than 15% of us growing up in the United Church. And so as we opened ourselves to folk from different cultural backgrounds, they brought with them their own patterns, and some kind of fusion began to happen. Together, we were creating a new pattern for the Church, certainly for the United Church. One of the differences they brought with them was using their bodies. I think it's not unfair to say that Anglo-Europeans have been a bit more afraid of their bodies than other cultures. In the traditional United Church service, we mostly sat. We looked askance at ADD wigglers like me. We, we tried to teach our children to sit still. I remember many years ago, a, a recently arrived Burundian woman was talking about a performance of Handel's Messiah by her church choir. Here's what she said. She said, oh, it was nice. It was, uh, it was, no, it wasn't. Only their heads were singing. Only their heads were singing. We can move and we need to give worship by moving. And not just that only, we need to uh, praise God. If we can even clap, how to know, like uh, everyone knows how to clap, right? In that interview, I, I didn't want to challenge Shirjana about her comment that everyone can clap. I, I can clap, uh, just not in time with the music or really in sync with other people. Slowly, our body started worshiping too. Dancing and clapping, it wasn't comfortable for anyone. Not for those like me who seemed to be rhythmically impaired. 
probably not for people who have come from away and we're trying to figure out why white people clap on the one and the three, not for newcomers who are arriving, trying to connect not only with European patterns, but to understand a bunch of other cultural minorities and their patterns. Oh, no, it wasn't easy. It was never comfortable. Sometimes it was even a bit raw, yet somehow still it was so beautiful, so empowering so hopeful. We'll explore this a bit more deeply in our next podcast. Our experience, if it's transferable, and, and I think it is, shows that we don't need to be afraid. There's an option to running headlong toward the cliff. We can open ourselves to welcome this new Canada, open outwards. We could just ignore all this, uh, but then there is that cliff ahead. Hiding our heads in the sand might not be our best option. And anyway, apparently, even ostriches really don't hide their heads in the sand. They'd suffocate. So, do we embrace this new reality, allowing, encouraging our churches to morph into new cultural communities? Or do we become a kind of Anglo hideout, hold on as long as we can, last refuge of the once dominant colonialists? <laughs> If you're part of a faith community, some of the information in this podcast about church decline might have been a bit jarring. I was personally surprised by the speed and intensity of the decline. And the gentle slide seemed less gentle than I had thought. But as Christians, we don't fear death, do we? Even after 20 centuries of searching, we still haven't been able to find a shortcut to resurrection. The mystic paleontologist and priest Teilhard de Chardin spoke about death, not just the final death, but the myriad of small deaths. He spoke about death as the essential prerequisite to resurrection. He said that to infuse us with life, God must break the molecules of our being so as to recast and remodel us. The function of death, he says, is to make us undergo the required dissociation the state organically needed if the divine fire is to descend upon us. Of course, this is mythic or symbolic language, but that's the natural tongue of the soul. It is only when the pain of staying the same is greater than the anticipated pain of changing that we move. That's our hope with climate change and for the church. Pain and possibility are the co-parents of change. Both are essential. Both are here. At Knox, it was at the moment of our deepest need, our greatest brokenness, that we realized that what we could offer the neighborhood, the newcomer community, was not our strength, our resources, our programs, even our love. It was simply space for them to bring their strength, their vision, their love, their capacity. It was then that things really began to change. We'll explore more on that theme in Episode 7. That's how the light gets in. On the website, you can find links to the various demographic studies mentioned in this podcast and last one, plus my own projections and links to other resources. If you want to find specific information on your neighborhood, you can find that in the resources produced by Statistics Canada. 
Group leaders and others can find additional resources at Open Out Extra, supplementary podcasts that can help you use this material in group context. I am grateful to the United Church Foundation, which through its Magici Scholarship funded this research, and to the United Church's Intercultural Ministries and Publishing House for their support. In our next podcast series, we move from simple curiosity to seriously considering the possibilities in front of us. What might we really look like? What might change? We begin that journey with a bit of visioning. We'll talk some more soon.